You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I am without Simone this week because I am on location in Orlando, Florida at the podcast movement. And this week, I am super excited to welcome another person from our podcast collective, Tristan Termino. Tristan Termino is an award-winning author, columnist, sex educator, speaker, filmmaker, and radio host. In addition to writing some of my favorite books, including Opening Up and The Guide to Anal Sex for Women, she's also the host of Sex Out Loud, the number one show on the Variety Channel of Voice America Talk Radio Network, which is also, like I said, a part of the Pleasure Podcast Collective. And... She's a great roomie. We're doing a crossover episode, so we're going to go back and forth and and you'll be able to, you know, so it's going to be like, she's going to interview me. I'm going to interview her. We're basically going to have a conversation. Is that what a conversation is? Yeah. (laughs) Um, First, before we like dive into what we wanted to talk about today, I think it's just such a funny thing being here at this podcast with you because we are like the sex people here. We're both like, didn't plan it, but we're both wearing our clitoris. Is that how you say it? Plurally? Clitor- clitoris. clitoris, our clitoris we necklaces. Have, we each have a clitoris necklace. Cl- yeah, clitoris necklaces. Mine was gifted to me by the sex educator L Chase. Mine was gifted to me by Betty Dotson. <laughs> and we just showed up on the first day, both wearing them, and so people think we're like in a cult, which we kind of are. The cult of the clitoris. Yeah. So there are no sex panels here. There are a few that like touch on it a little bit, a little, but barely over clothes. Yeah, touching. Overclothes. But whenever we tell people what we're doing, people come talk to us. Yeah, they think we're the coolest people like at the party. Um, you know, the Stitcher party, they're like, you have a podcast on what? And I'm like, well, what's your podcast about? And they're like, I do a podcast on wealth management. <laughs> and then I don't know kind of what to say back to them. And then I was like, oh, that's why you think like we're cool, but you don't even know us. <laughs> we had applied to be on a panel here, but I don't know if it was just. It was not accepted. Yeah, it was not accepted. We don't really know the reason, um, but it's interesting to be at a more mainstream conference because usually the ones that we go to, there's a lot more um, sex positivity, yeah, leather, inclusion, bondage. I mean, <laughs> you're, list- you're listing like, the other things. Yeah. That I'm like, <laughs> like butt plugs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, diversity. <laughs> oh, that stuff. Yeah, that that. But we were, we were trying to figure out over some um, house-made guacamole today what we wanted to talk about. And something that I find really interesting in what's going on in our like sex educator culture today is this cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by cancel culture is like if somebody fucks up, whether that be a company or an educator or a therapist who makes, whether it's a racist comment or a sexual assault allegation, we kind of have this reverse bullying that happens where we like cancel somebody. And I would love to talk with you about that because I know we've both had experiences with people who suck and experiences with people who are great. And like, when is it time or is there even a time for redemption? Yeah, it's such a big question. I mean, the thing I'll say is that just like happens in, in other parts of our life, like, What's playing out in sex positivity circles, right? Whether it's um, consent violations, um, issues around uh, coercion or sexual assault or sexual harassment, and call out culture and cancel culture are happening in other industries too, right? Right. We're we're just mirroring that, and we're we're playing it out on our particular you know playing field, but it is happening in all these other industries and all these other different worlds. Yeah. Um, I used to ride horses and um, they're finally doing it in that world. I also used to ride horses competitively. Really? Wow. We have so many overlaps. Also alpha delts. Oh my God. Um, we found out we were in the same co-ed literary society, society at college. We're both alpha delt. Um, yeah. I didn't know you rode horses. Yeah. We, we just are finding this out about each well, other. Well, they just, um, this guy who used to teach the 
hunter jumper Olympic team, George Morris. George Morris? Has now been um, blacklisted from everything. I mean, because of sexual assault I knew allegations. Who George Morris was when I was like ten. Really? I mean, he's been around for a long time, right? And so this is stuff that happened back in the sixties, seventies, mm-hmm. and, and probably continuing on. But yeah. like a huge figure in that community. Huge. And he's now a not rock allowed star. to anything. The equivalent of a rock star. Yes. In the show world. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the question, the questions are there. Like, how? First of all, how do we handle it? Um, and the one thing I'll say is that I have heard very compelling arguments and generally believe that this sort of traditional mainstream solution to these are to treat them as crimes, to be taken to the police and law enforcement, to be investigated, to be prosecuted. And my experience has been that people who are victims of sexual assault, who are survivors of all kinds of violence, often do not get justice through the legal system. Mm -hmm. And so when someone says, well, if something went wrong, just call the police. You you guys don't have to deal with it. You can always trust the police, especially if you're a minority. So what happens is then the community is left to say, what do we do? We are a loosely knit group of people who have some shared values and some shared culture. And... This is not going to play out, you know, on court TV. How, how do we work through this? Mm-hmm. What is the difference between call-out culture versus, like, cancel culture? Oh, uh, I think they're just really related. Mm-hmm. Because I think what happens is people get called out. And by call-out, I mean someone fucks up in some way, like you were saying. And... And and basically, they get called out, which means they publicly get um, they're they're targeted, and then they're they're sort of they're shamed. Usually, it's it's usually a, a sort of a tool of shame, but it's also to make public what their infraction was. Mm-hmm. And I'm not against calling out per se, in that I do believe if you are considered a leader in your community or you are considered someone with power, you have to be held to a higher standard, right? So you're not allowed to teach classes on consent mm-hmm. and then have a consent violation, mm. right? That's not, not practicing a, what you I preach. don't think that's a, quote, private matter, right? I think that, that that's something that people need to know about. And you had such a great live podcast where you talked about assault things happening within our community. Within our community. It, it does happen and there have been more yeah. throughout the years. And and the response that people have been taking is to like form an accountability pod. Yes. So h- how would you how yeah. would you describe that? Like so what what's happening now, this sort of model, but again it's like it's it's a living, breathing thing that's sort of developing right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. So so the first thing that sort of had to happen is people began taking these things seriously and then saying, okay, now what are we going to do about it? So in the case of one educator, um, they formed an accountability pod, which is a group of advisors, kind of an advisory board, who had experience in social justice, restorative justice, restorative processes. And those folks then went about creating a plan for the person who did the harming mm-hmm. To um, of of self reflection, of awareness, of therapy, of a reading list, of coming to terms with what they did, what reparations may be needed, um, and how they're going to kind of move forward. And then also, survivors and victims have pods as well. They're more like support pods, right. and some of those pods also collect information about the perpetrator. Um, from other folks. Because one thing we see again and again is that when one person comes forward, often that gives permission and space for other people to come forward. And so these, this idea that a consent violation is an isolated incident between two people and that just something got, something went sideways, but that it's just those two people is usually happen, which can happen, but it doesn't bear out. Yeah. Um, And so so there are these accountability pods and there are these support pods. Um, and, you know, I think, first of all, obviously survivors of, of every kind need, need support. Absolutely. They need to be validated. Um, I believe survivors and um, we have to listen to them. And, but I'm really interested by this, this concept of redemption because I will say I guess I prefer, I do like the restorative justice. Restore, okay. That you said. Restoration. I guess what, I don't know 
redemption to me, I guess when I think about it, has to do with that somebody can come back from this. Yes. Um, like that there is a way to get this restorative justice to right. go back into society. And right. I think I feel passionate about this because I have a unique opportunity to see both sides. So as a therapist, I see survivors and I see perpetrators uh, in my office. So not just of sexual assault, like I see people who have done shitty things and I see people who have received shitty things on a, on a spectrum of topics. and. Sure, I can decide like not to see those folks, but I really try to like find empathy for the quote unquote monsters, for the bad folks. That's often why I do a lot of work with non-offending pedophiles. Um, and so what is difficult to me, I guess, is I, I get to see how a person becomes the way that they are. So I get to see the the fucked upness of our culture, like for example, how um most men are not given like an opportunity to explore their feelings and learn boundaries and we don't teach and we don't have sex education stuff and then they come from an maybe an abusive background and xyz and that that doesn't give permission to do terrible things but i also it explains things it explains <laughs> it explains things, things. it puts yeah. it in context yeah exactly it gives it a context it gives us stuff to work through and to kind of re-narrate their life and some of the maybe negative stories that they have about people in the world and how that's impacted their behavior. So I just wonder, like, I don't know, like, how long is restorative justice? Like, can we even put a, a time or a benchmark mm -hmm. on it? And, mm -hmm. and then would we even recommend that person, like, for example, an educator, like, later on after they've gone through this kind of res restorative justice time? Right. And and it's something I, I'm I'm struggling with now. I feel like someone has gone through a restorative justice process. They've been entirely transparent about it, which means they have been posting things on Medium. Uh, it's not a secret group. It's not a it's not a link with a password. Anyone can read about this journey. Um, and I, and I find myself going, okay. So is this a model that we can now? kind of look at and say, this could be a blueprint or an outline mm -hmm. for someone else. Um, because there is something really problematic and harmful about shunning someone in the community. Um, first of all, I feel like it, it sets things up as very black and white. Mm -hmm. You're a good person or you're a bad person. We know that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I, when I spoke at the consent summit a couple of years ago, that national... Um, the National Co Coalition for Sexual Freedom put on, I began my talk as the keynote by saying, I have violated someone's consent. And everyone in this room has violated someone's consent. And if we can't come to terms with that, then we're going to keep kind of perpetuating this myth that like the boogeyman is around the corner and that person is evil and vile and a sociopath, mm -hmm. but I'm a good person. So I would never right. do that, right? And not just boundary consents. I mean, I guess I'm thinking even broader to like racist comments mm -hmm. or unfair practices. Like I know mm -hmm. recently there was this thing with that company, Wildflower Sex. Yes. Um, and, you know, they, they put out, and, and I can't speak to all of it because I wasn't involved, but there's some articles about it if listeners want to check it out. But mm -hmm. they kind of issued an apology and some folks were like, you know, it's not enough to have an apology. Like, we need more. We need systemic change. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I wonder, like, what does systemic change look like? Right. Like, what is and I process? Think, so I think the shunning thing is important because I feel like it's a sort of a function of, of individualism, first of all, mm -hmm. right? That, that you, you struck on this right away, which is this individual who did this thing did not grow, was not hatched in an egg, <laughs> literally grew up in a sex negative, heterosexist, patriarchal, racist, white supremacist, classist, ableist, yes. capitalist society. All the ists. Right? So those things created this person, right? And, um, and so this isn't about sort of individualism and, and, and a few bad apples. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we are already pretty isolated from one another. Um, you know, I feel like if there's an existential crisis of my generation, and certainly of people younger than me, it is about isolation. It's about talking to people on our phones, but not actually being in the same room with them. I guess because what I've seen, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but when we kind of have this restorative justice or this, this cancel culture approach, 
people stop talking. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, like you're canceled. You know, you're done. You're yeah. deleted. Um, I'm going to tell everyone you're deleted. Right. And so there aren't further conversations. Right. And I wonder, like, is that helping change things systemically? No. The answer has to be no. Um, and also, we, I think we... I think that there are people who are given opportunities to do the right thing, given opportunities to apologize, and don't. And they don't. And then it's like- Or they like, just like don't get it. Okay, you're like not here for the conversation. You're not listening mm-hmm. to people who are coming forward and saying you've harmed them. Yeah. You're not listening to other people who are saying the way in which you frame this or talk about this is also harmful. Um, but if there are people who say, oh my God, I fucked up, but I do want to learn, I do want to improve myself- I do want to see what my blind spots are. Mm-hmm. I do want to analyze my behavior. I do want to figure out why or how I did something that was harmful. Because often people harm without knowing they're harming. Yeah. Or they might not agree. Or they may think, I, I didn't harm you, right? I mean, for me, if someone says I harmed them, I, I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to say, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. It's, if someone is what harmed- What if you really believe you didn't? The thing is, they were harmed. And so even, even if I don't understand why they felt harmed by that word, by that action, um, they were harmed and we are in relationship with each other, mm-hmm. all, the, all of us, all the time. And I have to take that seriously. But on a, yeah, on a smaller scale, like when I have a couple in the office, if one of them says like, I did this, no, you didn't, yes, you did, it's not helpful and it's not about figuring out the truth Mm. it's the fact that like you can't really argue with a feeling Mm -hmm. so validating like someone's experience you don't have to agree to say like wow i can understand that that really hurt you Mm -hmm. it seems like this is really difficult Mm -hmm. um i'm so sorry that right you know this is having such an impact on you right i guess that sounds a little like blamey but i think there's ways to to own it without saying you agree or disagree i guess well, or hold I think, space for someone's. I also think hurt. We, we we have to we have to acknowledge that people have different experiences, yeah. and that when you say a simple sentence to me, um, I'm hearing it in a very particular way, and my own, own wounds, my framework, my lens, my baggage, my cultural history, um, all of that, my gender, all the day you're having, the the day I'm having, if all, you've taken medication yet, <laughs> yes, exactly, coffee, and so all of that is going to inform what I actually hear you say, right? Um, and we each have those those realities, and I have seen time and time and time again where people are in a story, a thing happened, and they have two totally different stories about it, mm-hmm. and there's not one who's right and one who's wrong. It was their experience. Whose job is it to do the rest? I don't want to say do the restoration. Obviously, it's the person who has who harmed. has harmed. I just mean, I think there is a pushback of some people being like, "Okay, I have harmed, so tell me what to do now. Mm. Tell mm-hmm. me how to fix this." Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I'm like, "Yeah, like maybe they do need resources. Can we connect them with those?" But also, if it's maybe a person in power asking um, marginalized a marginalized people. person for the help. Is it, their, is it the marginalized person's job to do the free labor and fix it for them? No. Like, where, I guess, where's the line between being like, here's some resources and here's some education versus like, let me do this restorative justice work for you? I mean, I know someone who, when they had an accountability pod, they actually paid them. Okay. Um, so it was like, hey, can I pay you for a consultation? Can I pay you for your labor, for your expertise, for your knowledge? That's a good for idea. For your experience in this. Um, and then it acknowledges their labor. Because the other thing that we have to say is that everyone I know who's doing restorative justice work is oppressed in some way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know a lot of like white cis men who are heterosexual and middle or upper middle class and able-bodied like doing restorative justice work. They're, they're out there. But often there are marginalized folks doing restorative justice. And so we have to definitely not exploit their labor mm-hmm. if we are somehow like dominant over them or, you know, in the role of the oppressor, whether we want to be or not. Well, we're also recording this in the wake, which actually I've been in such a bubble in travel that like, I was surprised at lunch today when you said that Epstein took his own life. And I was like, when did this, did this just happen? You were like, no, it was two days ago. (laughs) It was like a few days ago. Um, So yes, I need to wake the fuck up. Uh, But is that justice? Like I do, you were mentioning when we were talking earlier, like survivors 
oftentimes want justice. Sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes it doesn't feel necessary for healing. Sometimes it does. But is that justice? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really thorny issue. And I think like even, even someone, people who are harmed by him, yeah. I'm guessing, have very different responses to it. Yeah. I guess we can't speak for them. But no. if you were in that, I don't know if you've had assault experiences that you've like talked about before, but if, if a perpetrator that you wanted to go through like justice or go through the criminal justice system um, killed themselves instead, would you feel like justice was served? I mean, that gets to the core of what do survivors want, right? So I'm thinking and like- that's subjective, I guess. I, 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 would, I want, for, for people who've wronged me or harmed me, um, I want them to take responsibility for it. I want them to apologize. I want them to learn something from the experience. For me, as someone who's getting increasingly um, suspicious of the <laughs> of the criminal justice system, I thought you were going to say suspicious of his death because I no. know there's oh well, there's conspiracy you know. theories. Yeah, no, but um, I I don't know that I need someone to be like locked up. Um, but I need my experience recognized. I need it. I need it heard, mm-hmm. even if it's by a group of ten people or it's in the New York Times, like I, I need my experience heard and known and I want to be seen and understood in that mm-hmm. experience. Um, but sort of the Buddhist in me, I don't feel like, you know, I get to call the shots on another person. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I don't, but then I can see how this like would enrage people who are harmed by Epstein, who would be like, no, he deserves some fucking suffering. I suffered. And even if it was all this time in jail until his trial, even if it was people being mean to him on the internet, even if it was, you know, his family deserting him, whatever it is, like if I suffered greatly, I want this other person to suffer. How do you put a price on yeah, the I don't equal? Know. Like what would be yeah. the equal suffering? And also why, why, see the Buddhist in me would say, I don't, I don't want to suffer and I don't want other people to suffer. So... Um, like you said, we all have these different parts of ourselves. So, and then there's also like this sort of like vigilante in me. That's like, what if one of his victims like shot him with my own hands on like city, the steps of city hall in a kind of law and order way. I was just thinking there's so many SVU episodes (laughs) where people like, people do that all the time, fight back in the same way that they were abused. Yes. It's like, it's, it's weird. I mean, these are like really thorny issues. I've had fantasies about that for people who, you know, I've had sexual assault experiences and I've had fantasies of like. Like, what could I do to this person that would feel equal, that would feel like good enough? Yeah. But to me, I think what I wanted was that they wouldn't keep doing it. To other people. knowing that there wasn't enough evidence to, like, Mm. do anything about it or to stop them unless I wanted to continuously reach out to every person they ever dated after me. Right. And that they – I mean, I'm thinking of one person in particular where if I sat them down today, they would be like – no, 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 that didn't happen. Yep, same. Or like you're misinterpreting it. Yeah. Yep. No, 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 that's not, that's not how I remember it. Like I could just totally see him saying that. And But that's where the, I mean, I guess that's where the worst comes in. Is yeah. To- or maybe in these 20, 25 years, he's had some revelations about his own behavior. Maybe Me Too has woken him up and he's him on the podcast. gone back and evaluated, <laughs> um, you know, his behavior towards Wouldn't women. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Um, and, and has a better grasp of power dynamics. I don't know. Um, it's just such, it's like, I'm curious, like, I'm really curious. I want listeners to write us, email us and call us. Um, I should probably give them the number. So let me like, look that up. Um, because you know, I don't have it right on me because I'm a bad (laughs) podcast host. If you want to email me or sluts and scholars, sluts and scholars at Gmail. (laughs) Okay. So you can email me at Tristan at puckerup.com, or you can call our toll-free hotline. I called it a toll-free hotline. I'm really dating is myself, what it is? aren't I? It's a, it's a, it's a voicemail service. <laughs> it is a, I don't even believe it is like 
Oh my god, I, I don't I don't know what to say. Um, I don't even know why I just said that. I seriously are toll free. I feel like I'm on like QVC or something. I'm, I'm not I understood a, what you meant. I'm not toll on free. QVC. Okay, the number is eight six six. No, that's not the right number. That's the number when I'm live. The number is three two three S E X eight two six six three two three S E X eight two six six. I just want to know your thoughts. Are you a survivor? Are you someone who has been accused of harming someone? What are your feelings about the situation? Um, what do you wish happened? What did happen? Um, I'd be really interested to just let people speak in their own voices, tell their stories, be heard. Um, there's a level of anonymity because it's the radio, right? It's not full anonymity, but people don't have to give their names. Um, and I'd be interested if if people want to share any any part at which you have intersected with a story of violation. And I guess one could argue that the intersection can just be that you're like a consumer of news. Cause I think a lot mm. of people in watching like the Epstein thing would be like, Oh, well he should get this. He should have gotten this. Um, even yeah. if they haven't like we're, to, like we're doing right now. Right. Like, right. Even if they weren't involved in that situation with him. So I'm super interested in your work with non offending pedophiles. Yes. A couple reasons. One is that you were very specific that these are pedophiles who have not, um, been well, either have not offended or have not been caught offending. Mm -hmm. so also, just, for for our listeners, we're doing like a a podcast trade off. So we're doing like a a conversation, a back and forth convo. Yeah. So we get to hear a little more about my work too. Um. So you said non offending pedophiles, which I thought was interesting. The specificity. Um. But also, I would say that if there is a universally despised person among nearly all of humanity. It is a pedophile. Yes. And so the idea that you are working with pedophiles, I, I think there are some people out there who would say, you shouldn't even be working with them. Like I've they, had death threats. You've had death threats. Yeah. And, and have people within sex positive communities say, you know what? You have a lot of skills, a lot of experience, a lot of smarts. Put it somewhere else. Don't put it with like the dregs of the earth. Not that anyone has said to my face, but maybe behind my back. Mm. Um, I think the way I've presented it, it seems to be received well when I've given it to other like sex communities. Like I presented it at, at a thing called ASECT, um, and to, you know, just with the sexual health Alliance and a, a couple other radio shows. In fact, I just did one, um, called Abe Lincoln's top hat with a guy who does last podcast on the left. And, um, I got at least 10 emails from people afterwards that were all either wanting more information, people who identified as minor attracted, who were not offending, or people who were dating someone who had that interest. Mm. Um, so I think it's, it's more out there than people want to believe, mm -hmm. and maybe more of a spectrum than people want to believe. But even as someone who works with stigmatized communities, mm -hmm. marginalized communities. This is like a whole nother. People who have like alternative gender and sexuality identities, right? Like that's part of your core people that you serve, mm -hmm. right? As a therapist. But this has a connotation in our society of being just awful. I think that's why I specify non-offending. I mean, I, I am open to working with sex offenders, people who have already offended um, I haven't gotten a lot of them in my practice, but I think I specify because I'm trying to change the stigma between fantasy and desire versus behavior. Mm. Because I think in our culture, it's synonymous to say pedophile and child molester, as opposed to someone who is attracted to prepubescent children um, and somebody who acts on that. Usually we see that people who act on it have something else going on, like a personality disorder. Um, but there are a lot of folks who have some level of desire for minors um, that don't want to do anything about it, that, that mm. love children, that don't want to harm children. And they often can't find a therapist because everyone will turn them away. They'll say, like, that's disgusting, maybe not to their face, but they'll have a feeling of it. They won't know who to refer to. And then, I mean... Let's let's imagine like that folks with this attraction are ticking time bombs. I don't like to label them that way because I don't view them like that, but let's imagine we're doing this from like purely a safety perspective for children. There are a lot of reasons that people 
assault and harm children, not just minor attraction, Mm -hmm. whether it be power or substance use or other things going on. And so if we really want to protect children, I think we need more preventative, proactive care. So if we are concerned about this population, if we do have fear around them, I'm, I, I don't necessarily because I, I know them a bit better, but for people that do have that, um, to just say, well, like, we should just kill them all, they don't deserve help, um, who's that really protecting? So even if you don't believe that, you know, folks like that deserve a chance or redemption or restorative mm-hmm, justice or mm-hmm. whatever, like, is that helping? Because you're talking about interventions before yes, before people act on it yes. and before people commit crimes and before people may irrevocably harm someone. Yeah, because I think the bigger, bigger than the threat of minor attraction is the threat of social shaming, stigma, and isolation mm-hmm. and the lack of relationships and community and mm-hmm. the effect that that has on somebody. Mm-hmm. That's usually what folks coming in with that attraction say to me. They're not struggling with how to not act on it. They're struggling with how to live their life and like find meaningful relationships. How to reconcile their desires. Yes. Which, by the way, is something we allow people to do all the time. Just not about this. Just not about this. Because I'm thinking yeah. like when someone comes to me and says, I have just tremendous shame because I want to sniff panties. I want them to be dirty. I want to put them on my face and jerk off. Mm-hmm. And and most sex educators, sex positive people would be like, okay, Great. Well, find ma- someone to give you their yeah, panties. Like, absolutely. And even people who are like thought that that was like, uh, wouldn't say it because they're like, I'm not. I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm going to be shame free. I'm, you know. So it's like we'd be like, great. If if someone is giving you, don't steal anyone's panties. Don't do any of this non consensually. But if someone, and, and so we want to like empower them. This And also, what about people who are like, I have this amazing fantasy of, of being an alien and having sex with other aliens who are not part, part human and part animal, whatever, and those things are never going to happen. I mean, I, I wish they would. Right, but it's like... I, but <laughs> if you know any I mean? aliens are out there listening, so it's like, please call me. I don't say... I don't then think, well, if this is a fantasy of yours you're going to go act it out. Because then there's, we also right. know people have fantasies that literally they don't want to make come true. Yeah, like... It's a fantasy and they have no interest in even doing a, a simulation Yeah, like we were talking about people who, who've assaulted you. Like, I had fantasies of like, can I burn their house down? <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't. What can I throw at them? Right. But I didn't. But I think we have fantasy. I mean, one big fantasy I often have is when people are carrying a big tray of something and I'm like, I just want to flip that over. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want anything to happen. And I never do it. But it's this quick little fantasy of like, what would happen if I just said like, fuck this, I'm flipping this table over. Right. But like, not everyone wants to act on those things. Right. Or we have another compass, you know, guiding us. But I think it's just, it's so stigmatized. And, but there's, and I guess there's another piece of this, which I want to get into, which, which just popped into my head, which is, um, if I fantasized about uh, like kidnapping someone, an adult, and they wanted to be kidnapped, and we like did this kidnapping fantasy, mm-hmm. it would be um, it would be consensual. And most people believe that sex with underage people can never be consensual, even if the underage person says it was consensual. Mm-hmm. It can't be. It can't possibly be. Um, some some people define this in terms of legal, you know, what are the ages of the people? And some people just define it in terms of like morality and ethics and say a a, a 15-year-old cannot consent in a sexual exchange with a 30-year-old. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. How do we get to the consent piece of this, that your fantasy involves consent violation? Because I would say that like if someone had a rape fantasy, for example- Consensual non-consent. Yeah. Consensual non-consent. You know, and then like laid it out with their partner and they went through the things. I would say your fantasy is about non-consensual activities. Yeah, but then you did it safely in this other way. So I guess if we're talking about a minor attracted person, mm-hmm. um, which is, a, it's not, that does not just include pedophiles. So there are other categories. So someone who is a pedophile is attracted to prepubescent children. Someone who is um, a hebophile or a hebophile is attracted to early adolescence, so like 11 to 14. Um, so this is more like the, the Epstein mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. folks. And then someone who's a, um, a febophile or a febophile is late te- it's teens. 
which is, I, I think, so interesting because we live in a culture that highly sexualizes youth. Um, and mm-hmm. that's everywhere. And everywhere. I mean, one of the big categories online is, is teen porn. Granted, those are adults. Playing teens. Playing teens. But, you know, the, the small, skinny bodies, um, dressed up like little dressed girls, up like lollipops, lollipops, Yeah, and a lot pigtails. of the, the hentai, you know, yep. porn that we see, like, are depicting small children. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's character. So it's, it's okay. Um, or it's, at least it's viewed as legal. I mean, it's tough because ethically, legally, in my practice, I have to respect the ethical legal bounds that are out there. So obviously, if someone reports something to me like child pornography or sex, even if it's consensual across an age group that um, is not okay based on the things that I've agreed to in my therapy practice, then it's reportable. But personally, I have struggles with this because on one hand, it's subjective because look, the Ages have cha- age of consent has changed throughout time across you know different landscapes and different states. So I also believe that children and young adults have a sexuality. Mm-hmm. Do I think that means that someone in power who's an adult should prey on that? No, but I don't want to desexualize young people or let them feel like they can't make their own sexual decisions. Because when I was younger, I was I was always interested in in some like older folks, and I always felt like I was the one being like, "Let's get after this." Um, but I, I guess what it comes down to is the the power dynamic, mm-hmm. and that it's up to the person in power to set that boundary um, and make that clear. Mm-hmm. So even if there is another person saying, "But it's okay, I'm consenting to it," I think when there is a power dynamic most would argue that you can't consent. I'm really struggling with this um, on a personal level because I'm writing my memoir. Um, and I'm, there's some... The, I'm, well, I'm writing my memoir, and basically my memoir goes up until I'm about 25. Mm-hmm. So the I things, can't wait to read this. So the thing I want to say is, like, there's there's a lot of stuff that you don't know about me. Um, this is, like, my original origin story, not the story I tell of, like, how I became a sex educator, which kind of but started in college. That. It's before that. But also a lot of the steamy, steamy, steamy sex is going to be in my next memoir, which will Damn. cover my 20s and When's 30s. That one out? I know. So so don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm, I am swinging from the chandeliers at some point. Um, it's just not in this exact, this is more of like a sexual awakening, coming of age, figuring out I'm queer. Um, but I have a situation where the first person that I had sexual intercourse with, at, who I was in a relationship with, um, was older than me. I was mm-hmm. 16. They were 21. Mm-hmm. Not a big age gap. I pursued them. I initiated the sex. And did you feel empowered? And, and- I felt great about it. And yeah. it was a positive experience. I never felt coerced into anything. I felt very taken care of. And I felt like he was a compassionate lover and he listened to me. And it was a great experience. Okay. So it was just a great experience. And yeah. I know people do not have those experiences. But I, I really, I've wrestled for a number of reasons whether to include this story in my book. I've written it, but whether to include it. And I know that if I put it out there, there will be some people who say to me, Tristan, you were 16. Yeah, you were victimized. This is never appropriate. This is, there's no circumstances under which this is an assault. You're painting it as something else. So you haven't quite gotten there or you're like not evolved or you're like in denial. But this isn't okay. It's never okay. And still, when yeah. I look back on it with like a really strong, like, you know, anti rape, um, super feminist lens, I still have to tell you the way I feel in my gut mm-hmm. is that I, I, I don't think that I was abused or assaulted. We have similar experiences in that realm. And, and I've, I, share, I share that feeling. I think it's tough because then I have clients who come in who I have to hold to a different standard because of reporting laws. Um, Mm. so I don't know. It's, I find myself getting stuck around this topic because I also like, as I'm, you know, advocating for preventative care for folks with minor attraction, that's not me giving permission to act on things, to be unethical, to do illegal stuff. And knowing that in my own life, I've felt that these things were empowering. I mean, I guess some people could say that we're just, um, what's the word? In denial. In in denial and whatever. I mean, it's tough because I don't, I don't want somebody to tell me about my assault. Or, or my positive sexual yeah, experience. Yeah, or define it for me. And yeah. I have clients who come in who will be telling me about physical and emotional abuse, and they are in denial. And part of the work is for me to help them 
maybe label that sometimes or name it, name it and see the situation that they're in when they're describing like a very controlling situation and I'm hearing it. But I think there's a fine line between judgment and putting my goals onto a client versus supporting them where they're at. Yeah. Um, Someone just said this recently to me about um, you can give people tools and resources and even support to get where they're going, but you can't be invested in where they're going. You you can't be invested in them doing it in a particular way, doing it at a particular speed, or where they get to. You you can want for someone to get to a certain place, but you really got to kind of let it go because, yeah, I mean, I, I that that really just hit me hard when I heard someone say that. And they were talking about a, a totally different set of circumstances, but it sort of applies to everything, which is like, don't get invested in the outcome and don't put your goal for someone on them. They have their own life to li- to lead and they have their own lessons to learn and they have their own journey. And I hate that I even said the word journey because it sounds like <laughs> it I'm on The journey. Bachelor or something, but <laughs> whatever. I watch The Bachelor. Okay. I do too. <laughs> oh, maybe we need to talk about that next. I ha- We have a queer women's bachelor viewing party what? that you're going to have to come to. Wait, stop the presses. <laughs> Ashley I has been on our pod we, what? I've been on her pod. Congratulations, oh Ashley. I for she getting married. married. I know. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Because like, just so you know, I mean, I'm very out about it as I am about most things in my life. I'm super out. And I don't like the term guilty pleasure. I, for me, it's just pleasure. Yeah. But it, I do feel a little guilty. That's why we call it a queer women's viewing party, because it's just our way of giving ourselves permission to drink wine and watch like a pretty, you know, heteronormative, yeah. misogynistic show. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I love it. But, well, I watch it for a couple of reasons. One is that it really is a show about polyamory. Yes. If you don't watch the last episode. Yes. They want, it ultimately, the arc of the story always wants to reify and reinforce and value monogamy, heterosexuality, Yeah, but they're loving more than one person. But they say, they're in the interviews saying, I love more than one person. Mm -hmm. All the people know what's going on. These guys live together for a period of time. Maybe it was really created by a non-monogamous person who's just trying to make that palatable for the mainstream. Right, (laughs) right. And then the other thing... I watch it for is that I do think it's really important as a sex educator and as someone who talks about relationships to sort of be in touch with the collective, and I'm just going to say the collective white, heterosexist, Hollywood-driven imagination well, around that's what relationships. people and, right. and their like, expectations. I, I want to know what people are being fed. Right. And I'm not saying everyone watches it or whatever. And it obviously skews in a particular way. But I want to know what people, what images people are seeing, what they're holding themselves against. And not everyone can watch it with a discerning lens like you probably can. Right. Not that I'm always thinking about that when I'm watching it, but I know that I can separate some of it. But folks who haven't had all the sex, whatever education backgrounds that we have can't always look at it with that perspective. Yeah. Like that's yeah. if that's the only example. But people shame me for it like up and down. All <laughs> I support the your bachelor time. viewing. All the time. I'm not they gonna shame cancel you. Um and I just think it's you know, it's a fascinating portrait. Again, reality TV is scripted, reality TV has storyboards, reality TV has editors and producers, and um so it is a scripted fantasy, which real people are 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 in. And it's just amazing to me to just think of that's like, like porn. It's like what is the state of heterosexuality? Is like the you know what is the state of sort of white middle class normative heterosexuality today? Oh man, do you remember that uh, Tila Tequila? Oh my one? god. <laughs> well, you know, of course, when you hear it's a shot bi- at love. It's with a, Tila it's Tequila. A, she's bisexual. She's going to be choosing from people who identify as men, people who identify as women. And if you're pansexual or queer or bi like me. Of course, you're like, this is amazing. This is fucking revolutionary. <laughs> and then it comes on and you're like, this is a fucking train wreck. <laughs> I mean, or did you see some redemptive value? Honestly, I don't remember the quality of it. I think this was like the time of MySpace where I was like, MySpace star has a show. Like, what? <laughs> you're also younger than me. I'm so, going to look yeah. on my MySpace. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I had any higher level thoughts about it, but oh. I'll have to rewatch with my lens now and see okay. what I think. Yeah. But I, I believe, I trust you. <laughs> yeah, it was, ooh. Going, it going it didn't to, shift the culture, I'll tell you that. 
Yeah, I can believe that. Going back to what you were saying before, though, about like changing people, I think I struggle with that a lot because people put their faith in therapists sometimes. I don't want to say too much because I, I want but to they, be here. But they do. They want you to change them. Yeah, sometimes. Or, like, or that's it. they come in. Yeah, or you feel the pressure of like, fix it for me. But I think I've really had to step back and acknowledge that me wanting clients to grow faster is both a discomfort of me sitting with someone's pain and also a selfish desire for me to affirm my skill skill as a therapist. Mm. That's a really intense insight, actually. I mean, I've gotten here after like, you know, a lot of my own (laughs) therapy and like talking to supervisors and shit, but that is my, that is a common thing that I, and I think a lot of other therapists I've talked to struggle with is like, am I doing good enough? Am I helping enough? Am I doing this? Are they getting enough out of it? Um, And often when I feel like they aren't, I get feedback that they are. So it's, you know, it's a self-imposed thing. And it's your perception. And it's selfish because it's it's not about. It's your perception. Yeah. They're not there to make me feel good about my skills. Right. Because that's just ego-centered. And And it's it's not, not, it's their therapy. Yeah. And they're actually, yeah, it's about, supposed to be about them. But of course, as a human, you know, when I have a client who is doing well, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> well, of course. Or like, they're, you know. I mean, I just, I've been in therapy for, like, since I was in my 20s. Yeah, I'm a lifer. I'm I'm 48 now. And I've been in lots of different kinds of therapy with different therapists. And I will say that I have a secret fantasy, always and forever, that I am the most. Your favorite client? Complicated. <laughs> engaged, self-aware, <laughs> favorite client they've ever fucking had in their lives. Yep. Of course I have that fantasy. It's so ego-driven, but it's just like, come on, you've got to look forward to when I come. Who else is telling you about like power dynamics at orgies? Like who else is telling who else you- Who about butt bondage? Yeah, like, but I know it's, it's probably not true, but um, I like to feel like I'm, I'm it. That they go home and they're like, I have this most amazing client. (laughs) I think if you really like your therapist, there's probably some mirroring going on Mutuality or something, yeah. I mean, for me, I know that I can't do great work if I don't at least like my clients a little bit. Mm. Um, Oh, okay, good. Because I think it's the therapeutic rapport is like the most important part. I try to be very like humanistic in my approach. So when I'm noticing that someone may be like performing to try to be my favorite. Please you, please you. To please me. You know, we name it and then we talk about it, which Mm -hmm. can be very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important because, you know, I I want people to come in with whoever they are, wherever they're at in that moment, not as like a sterilized version of like the client they think they're supposed to be. Oh, yeah. I think it would be very damaging if I wanted to please my therapist Mm -hmm. Because then I wouldn't reveal half of what I... Yeah. But you're still like, I, me as my authentic self is pretty yeah, great, like, like so I, you should I, like me. No, but I'm like, I wouldn't reveal half the shit I've told them because it's so fucking embarrassing or shameful or like, I'm not a good person all the time or whatever it is. Like, I wouldn't reveal the dark side so so easily if I wanted them to like me. I don't want them to like me as a person. I want them to like me as like a case study. <laughs> Like scientifically. Yeah, like, like oh, this one's this complicated. Mm, she's smart and complicated. Um, God, it's so it's so egotistical. Like I'm saying it on the air, so just- But I th- I don't think you're the only person who thinks that because I've thought that in my own therapy. Clients of mine have thought that. Like I'm pretty sure it's a common Okay desire to want to be liked and accepted. Yeah. And we can like say, you know, I don't give a fuck what other people think or make that separation, but I don't think that's ever true all the time. Right. Okay. 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 Turning it back to the folks you work with who are, and you're, so you're using the term minor attracted, mm-hmm. right? Instead of pedophile. Because, because of the. Pedophile is also not holds. descriptive because it doesn't cover all the ages. Yes. Okay. So that's really, that's interesting. Um, do people withhold stuff from you at the beginning? Like, do they say, I'm here for this, but. Does other stuff get revealed as the therapeutic process happens? I think that's true for any presenting thing. Like people, sometimes people don't even know why they're coming in. So they'll come in as a couple and be like, this is our struggle. And then like, that's not it at all. Oh. After so we they like, say I'm uncover having, stuff. I, you might come in and be like, my wife has been bugging me to go to therapy 
we're having trouble. Our sex life is really. She said, I have a problem. She, right. It's my problem. And But I don't know what my problem is. And then really it's like okay. a more relational dynamic. Or, okay. You know, there's other stuff going on. Right. In terms of the minor attraction, I mean, I think I'm pretty outspoken about um, that I am open to working with these folks mm-hmm. and out there about it. So often when they call, I think there's a sense of safety. Um, sometimes, though, people who reach out in that population, um, the first email they send will be like um, from a pseudonym. Um, so -hmm. until they like feel comfortable after talking to me, Mm -hmm. they're afraid for good reason for good. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, there are therapists out there who will report fantasies. Fantasies are not reportable, but I think if someone feels uncomfortable with hearing something, um, they may report something that's not actually reportable. Mm. So I think there, there are real fears out there, Mm -hmm. but definitely I think, and look, there might be people who I've seen that haven't told me stuff that they've done because they know that it's reportable because I am very clear at the beginning of like, I want you to feel like you can be yourself here. I want to support you. Fantasies are not reportable. I want to help you find legal and consensual risk aware ways to express yourself and Mm -hmm. find relationships. But if you tell me about X, Y, and Z, I have to report it. I'm legally bound. Do you understand? Do you have any questions? Like tell me, how that sits with you. But has there ever been a situation where someone has said, I'm, ha- I'm having these fantasies, I've never acted on them. And then at some point, they really trust you and they get comfortable and they say, okay, I'm, in- I'm thinking about acting on them. So they haven't acted on them, but they're like in a next stage of like ideation about action. Like I said, I think what i Is I've there like seen- an intervention? Like yeah. what, what do you do in that situation? There isn't a lot there isn't enough research on non-offending folks because most of it has been done on incarcerated individuals. And so, like I said, there's skewed data because the folks who have committed sexual offenses often have some other co-occurring diagnosis that's impacting um, their ability to maybe have empathy or their ability to control themselves in a certain way. So there's usually something else going on. So I would probably know even before they told me if there were other risk factors. Um, I mean, maybe maybe I wouldn't, not in, not in all cases. But I would say I haven't had anyone who said, I'm worried I'm really going to do this. It was more that society viewed them as a ticking time bomb. So they were almost mm-hmm. like living into this um, pressure of like, well, if everyone thinks that at some point I'm going to harm a child, then I guess that must be right. Even though that's not what's in my brain. Even though they're like, I can't see myself ever ever doing doing that. I don't want to do that, but I guess I can't work with kids or I guess I can't do this tutoring job. I guess I can't have kids. I guess I have to stay away. Right. Um, So I think it's, it's almost more of like a culturally imposed thing. If there isn't other mental health stuff going on that might impact somebody's ability. Um, Mm -hmm to have that sort of moral reasoning. Is it considered by the American Psychological Association, by the DSM, by a certain group of therapists to be a mental illness or disorder? Um, Yes. And so pedophilia or hebophilia or any of those are not considered, actually pedophilia is the only one uh, in the DSM. So for it to be pedophilic disorder, you have to either have acted on it or like caused harm to another person or it has to be impacting your life negatively and like affecting the way that you live your life in a negative way so it's not a disorder if someone just has the attraction the same thing is true for exhibitionism and voyeurism so you can say i'm an exhibitionist like i like to you know have sex in public or get naked in front of people and that's all good and fine as long as it's, you know, risk aware with consenting adults mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. feeling good about it. Right. But if you were feeling shameful about it and you were exposing yourself on the train to unwilling non-consenting people, that's disorder. Okay. Right. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. Like, it does feel like a legal, it's like a legal categorization, but I also wondered like where, okay, so it's also, um, it's medicalized and and considered a disorder. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be a lifelong one. Like, for mm. example, you can be put into that category if you're, for example, if this attraction is making you feel like totally shamed and now you're depressed because of it, that might fit under the disorder because it's impacting your life. But if you 
address those underlying things, you can move out of it and it just be a desire, not a diagnosable disorder. Mm. Well, that seems like a hard call. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. That seems yeah. like a hard call. I mean, I'm not, I haven't been trained and I haven't gone to school, but it seems like, how do you decide that about someone? Does it take six months before you can figure it out? Like, how do you decide it? Like, if they're okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you decide any of if that for any okay. client? Like, I don't know if I know. it's up to me to decide right? Um, based on my own judgments of, like, what quote-unquote okay is. But to me, anything sexual is cool as long as it's consensual and risk-aware. And, I guess, shame-free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit of shame can be fun and sexy. When you eroticize um, it yeah. in a deliberate way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But to, I mean, to yeah. me, that's kind of the, the only guidelines I really have. Mm. Okay. I feel like I've been firing questions at you left and right. <laughs> so now I'm going to let you ask me some things. Oh my gosh. I feel like I already asked you stuff. I feel we've, we've probably covered it We've already it all. revealed so many things. I mean, we've the talked bachelor. about horse riding, George Morris, <laughs> which none of you listeners probably you know, know anything about. Yeah. Um, pedophilia. The Bachelor. Epstein. Heteronormativity. <laughs> also, uh, the Bachelor again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, shoot, we've like covered but, all like, the things. But like, is there a question... That you've like you've always wanted to ask me, or something that you've like never heard me talk about, or anything like that. Because oh, we are boy. just to set the stage. We're in a hotel room in Orlando. We're mostly naked. Wearing robes. We're both kind of nudists, <laughs> but also a little chilly. We run a little on the chilly side, so I'm like, let's do it naked. Oh wait, I need a sweater. I'm a little bit Turn cold. Turn the air off. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Um, um, you're a great roommate. I'm really excited to be here doing this with you, especially in this context. And I have a great view of of swamps. Of swamps. A swampland golf course. Luxury golf course swamp. The last question I guess I have is, I don't know if it's a question. I think it's more of a reflection because we've talked about this already a little bit on my podcast, but have you ever felt bad or judged for not having higher education degrees in this field? Because I do because I needed them to practice this therapy thing, but my co-host Simone doesn't. We really want to empower people to be their own scholars, their own mm. slutty scholar selves. Mm -hmm. um, and I know lots of people who have many degrees that I would never send a client to because I think they don't do good work. And I know lots of coaches and educators who don't have a even maybe a bachelor's degree that do amazing work and vice versa. So I wonder what it's been like for you because you're obviously very prolific and successful and someone who I've looked up to. So I'm like super honored to be here with you in robes <laughs> at this hotel in Orlando. Um, but have you ever felt self-conscious? Cause you seem so, you seem so on it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, part, I mean, I'm a very type a sort of anal retentive, uh, kind of like go getter person. I like how you describe yourself as anal retentive. Yes, that's just, of course. Um, because let's a just funny description let's be for literal. you. Let's be literal. Um, <laughs> she can really hold in a butt plug. I mean, what some people don't know is that I'm actually a highly functioning, super depressed person. So I'm able to be incredibly driven and productive um, because of medication and because of therapy. Um, and the combination really works for me. And I can't really do one or the other. Um because I've been dealing with major depressive disorder for, um, I mean, since I was in my 20s. So, um, but I feel like, so you feel like I have it all together or I do it all. I, you know, there are times when certainly someone has reached out to me about a job and whether that's like, can you be a talking head on TV? Can you speak at this conference where there's going to be a lot of medical professionals? Mm -hmm. Can you speak at this university? And then they've said, we have, you know, we have a few guidelines from our organization, from our school, whatever, and you have to have an advanced degree to talk mm -hmm. about sex. We have liability issues. Or this is, these are our values, whatever it is. So there's certainly times when I've like lost a job because I don't have an advanced degree. Mm -hmm. And it does seem kind of arbitrary in terms of like what I know versus what someone with a master's knows, yeah. right? That stuff's like not that measurable. But I also feel like I've managed to infiltrate certain spaces that, you know, I'm thinking about when I was at the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. 
Their program is one of the most prestigious for sex educators and um, sexual health providers and therapists who specialize in sexology. Um, all of those folks in the room had at least a master's degree. Many of them had PhDs, and there were several MDs in the room. Mm-hmm. And I was getting paid to talk to all of them. Yeah, but look, most of those people only got one class around sex. That's exactly. why they're... So, so if it's about sex, so I, do, I know you know more than most of those right. folks. So I do feel like there are people who have def, who definitely value my perspective mm-hmm. and who aren't turning me away just because of my degrees. Um, I mean, I'm super nerdy and academic and I loved school. So I, it's like I wouldn't hate going back to school, <laughs> actually. And I do have like strange fantasies of like, getting my master's or would I go now and get my MFA? Would I, would I do a master's of science? Would but I do it's a master's expensive. of arts? It takes time. It's privileged. It's, it's very privileged. Um, um, I would love to be called Dr. It is limiting. Tristan. Yeah. Um, but that's like a sig, that's like an eight to 10 year commitment to yeah. be a doctor. Um, so I like to just think of like, if you want me to have this advanced credential and I don't, I can refer you to someone who does. Yeah. I mean, I have a huge network of people, right? And, I, you know, I'll refer someone simply because that's not my specialty, that's not my wheelhouse, and I'll refer someone who has different qualifications mm-hmm. because that's what your guidelines, that's what you need. I guess in short, like, does the imposter syndrome ever end? Oh, God, yes, of course. <laughs> no, no, no. Because I... Imposter syndrome That feels daily. like an ongoing thing. No, that's daily. And it's really funny because um, I was thinking about how many times it's been mentioned at the conference, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, wait podcasters have imposter syndrome, but of course, anyone who's a creative type, anyone who creates something and puts themselves out there in some way has imposter syndrome. Like it's just, it's a function of capitalism. Even someone who's at the level that you're at in your field. Yes, absolutely. It's a function of capitalism. And it's also when we are marginalized in any way, you know, I do, I, I, you know, I think maybe there are some like white guys out there who are pretty mediocre who never ever think that they're mediocre or even below average. Mm. I've met them. You know what I mean? They think they're the shit and that their opinion matters and that they should answer every question and they shouldn't. So <laughs> that's so something else going like on there. Though. There's like oppression. Yeah. There is oppression and, and marginalization that right. sort of you internalize, which is like. Whenever you're in a group of men and women, men speak, men raise their hands, women are like thinking through what they're going to say, and they want it to be not repetitive, and they want it to be something that's going to add to the conversation, and they don't want to take up space. I mean, there's like this whole tape in your head, you know? So, um, but absolutely, I I think creating things, and I think writing and making media is really hard, and I feel like there's always sort of doubt in there. I think it's, to me, it's just like stopping this vicious cycle. Cause like before I met you, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be like Tristan. Like she does all these things. Like she, she seems like she has it all together. She's doing all the right stuff. What am I doing? And then people have come up and told me you're doing everything I want to be doing. Like, how did you do all this stuff? And here I am like, and then I talk to you and you're like, oh, but I'm, I'm still feeling that way and looking at I want to be like this person. So it's this never ending ridiculous cycle that like we need to just stop and and the push through it i mean that's the other thing that's really interesting is that i don't know that you can eradicate it i think you it can sit there and you can just say to it okay you're really bugging me you're on my shoulder you're playing a tape in my head i'm gonna do it anyway that's like any negative narrative right like like, you're just gonna for sharing but thank you next i'm gonna push through it but fuck Um, off so so yeah i don't even know that i will ever eradicate the imposter syndrome tape in my head or the critic, the inner critic. Mm -hmm. I just, um, there are times when I feel really strongly, like I can ignore it. Other times when I feel like I can put it in the closet and shut the door and not even see it or hear it. And then other times where it can stop me or it can make me hesitate or it can actually debilitate me. I feel like I have all those experiences still 20 years into this career. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, I don't want to say it's nice to hear that you're still struggling with that, but no. it is it is affirming <laughs> to hear that uh, that is an ongoing work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for 
coming on Sluts and Scholars and letting me come on your episode. For our listeners, for my listeners who are listening on the Sluts and Scholars, go obviously check out Sex Out Loud if that's not something you're already subscribed to. Um, You can check us out at slutsandscholars.com. Email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. On Instagram at slutsandscholars. Twitter at slutscholars. And it's really, really helpful if you could please go on any app or whatever that you listen to, like leave us a review. It really is helpful. And of course, if you would like to give us your money, patreon.com slash sluts and scholars. And for my people, you just found out how to follow sluts and scholars. So you should subscribe to the podcast, go to the website, support it on Patreon. You can find me across all social media platforms at Tristan Taramino. My Safe for work website is tristanterramino.com, not safe for work, puckerup.com. There's also sexoutloudradio.com. I also have a Patreon, but my Patreon has revolved around my memoir writing. So um, so I'm just putting ads on my show, and that's how I pay for it, kids. I know some of you don't like them. But if you want to support my writing process and me being able to take more time to write, you can go to patreon.com slash Tristan Taramino. We are here live at Podcast Movement, an an amazingly interesting conference in Orlando, Florida. Till next time. Bye.